Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, that can be found on page 829 for using the, the black Bibles that are provided. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we've come to verse 3. Last week we saw Jesus lament that the nation of Israel had refused to embrace him as the Messiah, as the, the promised king sent from God. Remember we heard Jesus' words that he had longed to lovingly gather under his protection um, the, the people of Israel. He had longed to lead them at, in, in love and in, in righteousness. But they were not willing by and large to do that. They were not willing to, to follow him, to embrace him as their king. And so uh, that was really kind of the last straw, the last chance. Jesus knew that um, God was going to bring judgment on the nation because they had rejected Jesus as the Christ. Because they would not follow him, God was going to destroy the temple and even destroy Jerusalem in the very near future. And so last week we saw Jesus uh, leave the temple for the last time. And I explained that Jesus leaving the temple hearkened back to pictures in Ezekiel of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. And in fact, in Ezekiel 11.23, it says that the glory of the Lord leaves the temple and stops on the mountain that is on the east of the city. And that mountain is the Mount of Olives. And so here in Matthew 24, when Jesus and his disciples leave the temple, when the Son of God, the glory of God, leaves the temple, guess where he goes? To the Mount of Olives. So again, we're seeing uh, Ezekiel fulfilled here in the life of Christ. Now from the Mount of Olives, Jesus will give his final long section of teaching recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapters 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse. Again, because Jesus is giving this teaching from the Mount of Olives. So today we want to, the plan is to consider verses 3 through 28. We'll try to move quickly through them. And I would ask the congregation to stand, please, for the word of God. So please follow along as I read verses 3 through 28. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. 
So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. What should we expect as we follow Christ? What, what should we expect this world to be like? What, should we, what challenges or difficulties should we encounter? Or should we expect difficulties? Should we, should we expect life to just be smooth sailing now that we're following Christ? Well, clearly the Bible teaches us that's not going to be the case. And this is one of those passages where Jesus um, is really helping us by, by telling us as his disciples what to expect from this world. And I, I hope you noticed as, as we're going through, there's a lot of exhortations, a lot of warnings in, in these verses. The title of the sermon today is Living Between His Comings. 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and to live and die on the cross to purchase our salvation, as we just sang about. And Jesus rose from the dead in victory and ascended to the Father's right hand, where he reigns now from his heavenly throne. So that was his first coming. And the Bible says that one day Jesus will come again, this time in power and in great glory, to gather his own and defeat his enemies once and for all. And so currently we are living between those two comings. And again, we ask the question, how then are we to live as we await Christ's return? What should we expect life to be like until Jesus comes again? And Jesus answers those questions in our text today. And, and again, the main purpose of the Olivet Discourse is, is not to provide a, a timetable for the future with, where people can set dates and things. No, the main purpose is to warn and encourage and exhort um, those who would read it to, to faithful discipleship. To be faithful disciples here in the present Right As we follow Christ and to, to watch and to wait in confident trust in the outworking of God's sovereign purpose in history as we await Christ's return. Notice with me please here that the setting is that Jesus, the teaching he gives here beginning in, in verse 3, it comes in response to questions from the disciples. We saw that last week. Remember in verse 2, Jesus told the disciples, right? This is right as, as he's left the temple and they're enamored with how great Herod's temple is. He had had this big construction project going on. They're like, look at the stones, look at these buildings. Remember Jesus said, I tell you, not one of these stones will remain on top of each other. The temple would not be left standing. And so we kind of left it there last time, but imagine what that did to the disciples. That would have rocked their world. I mean, news that the temple was soon to be destroyed would have been shocking to them. The temple was, for one, it was just this massive structure, but for two, it was, the, it was central to their religion. It was their, their source of, of national pride. And now Jesus is saying it's going to be destroyed? And so him, him saying that prompts this question that we read about in verse 3. Now they've They've left the temple, they're, they're on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come to him privately, right? So the crowds aren't around, it's just his disciples, saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So really, they ask two questions. The first question is, when will these things be? And the second is, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? We know from the articles in, in, the, in the original that that, is, that was all one question. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So there's two questions. When will this be and what will be the signs that it's about to happen? So the disciples are not only asking about the destruction of the temple, but they're also asking about uh, Christ's return at the final judgment. And for them, they saw that as all one event, really. Because, again, the temple was so central uh, to, to God's purposes, they felt like, that, that for it to be destroyed, this must, be, this must mark the end of the world then. This must be when, when Christ is coming in, in final judgment at the end of time. So that's what they're asking. When is all this going to happen? 
So the rest of, of this chapter is Jesus answering that question, talking about the destruction of the temple and also talking about his return leading to final judgment. Though the disciples thought those were one connected event, they were mistaken. Obviously, those are distinct events, right? The, the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed in A.D. 70 under, under the Romans, and yet we still await Christ's return. But the disciples were right in the fact that they are connected. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, that's an example of God's judgment. And it really serves as a foretaste of what the final judgment will be like. And so in describing it, Jesus intentionally intertwines, I believe, the two events because the destruction of Jerusalem serves as a, as a symbol, as a, as a preview of what would come in totality when Christ returns and brings the final judgment. So this is a tricky passage. If, if you're very familiar with it, you know it is. Different people um, try to figure out, well, okay, when's he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? And when's he talking about the final coming? And, and, what, and, and again, I, I think they're intertwined because one is a preview of the other. I'm going to share with you my best understanding of this as we go through it, at least today. Verses 4 through 28, I believe Jesus is describing, again, this, the, the times that we're in as well. The times in between his two comings, I believe he's describing in verses 4 through 28. But then we'll see tucked into that in verses 15 through 21, one particularly violent display of judgment in the fall of Jerusalem. So I think verses 15 through 21 is specifically talking about the fall of Jerusalem. But again, that's just a preview of the final judgment to come. So as we go through these verses, again, remember Jesus is preparing his disciples. I I trust you saw that, how often he said, see that you're not alarmed, see that you're not deceived. I'm telling you these things ahead of time is what he's saying, right? And so we need to listen. We need to listen, loved ones, as we follow Christ so that when we see trouble and persecution and and, and false teaching out there that we're not led astray, that we're not thrown for a loop thinking, oh man, God's plans and purposes are unraveling. Things are out of control. So he's telling us what every generation of Christians, I believe, should expect to see. What, what, what is going to be true of this age that we live in. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So here's the first thing we can expect to see. False claims or false teaching, you could say. Jesus warns his disciples that there's going to be many pretenders who will come claiming to be the true Christ. Right? And it makes sense in one I mean, it's evil, of course, but it, it, when things are, are tough, when, when, when there's trouble and persecution, well, then that's just fertile ground for people. People are looking for relief. They're looking for deliverance. And so it's fertile ground for Satan to raise up false Christs to, to try to lead people astray. And Jesus warns that these imposters will come in my name. In other words, they're going to come not merely in words, but they're going to come even performing some signs. It makes me think of how in Exodus, remember, the Egyptian magicians were able to, to mimic some of the signs that God was doing through Moses initially, right? And then, of course, God showed that he was greater. But they had, they had you know, uh, evil powers. Likewise, some of these who claim to be Christ may, may be performing certain signs or wonders, but their point is their power is not from God. And so Jesus says, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived into chasing after false Christs, and don't get distracted by looking for all these so-called signs. Rather, just stay faithful to me. Stay faithful to my word. That's what he's saying to us throughout this passage. Then in verses 6 through 7, Jesus tells us a second thing to expect as we follow him in this, in this fallen world, and that's wars and chaos in society. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus says you're going to hear about wars. You're going you're to hear about all, this, all the, these conflicts and, and not just little skirmishes, but whole nations rising against nations. 
These things must take place, but the end is not yet. Because again, the disciples, when they're hearing about these wars, they, they might have naturally thought, oh, the end of the world is here. The time has come. But Jesus says, no, the end is not yet. Wars and chaos does not mean the day of final judgment has come, nor does it mean that things are spinning out of control. Because notice he says there in verse 6, for this must take place. That word must speaks of divine necessity. It speaks of God's sovereign plan being worked out. This is all part of God's plan. The end is not here yet. And so, again, as I'm describing these things, the first century Christians saw these things. They saw false Christ. They, they saw wars. We'll see in a moment. They, they saw famines and natural disasters. But really, every generation of Christians sees those things. These are, these are all just um, kind of reciprocal, right? These are things that we should expect as we follow Christ in this fallen world. Of course, nowadays, we don't just hear about wars and riots, but I mean, every day when you turn on the news, right, or, or I'd say turn on the news, right, most of us view the news on our phones or computers, oh, another shooting, right, another war, and our hearts are grieved by that, of course, but again, let us remember that God is sovereign over that. He's not the author of evil, evil people are doing evil things, but God is sovereignly working out his plans, and God is more powerful than evil. Everything that happens, even tragedies, are part of his wise and loving plan. And, and as we see that and as we pray for those who are in trouble, as we seek to try to help in any way we can, we, it, it just makes us long for Christ's return all the more. Because one day Christ will come back and he will put an end to all chaos once and for all. He'll, he'll, he'll judge and eradicate evil and usher in the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no more fighting and no more, no more pain and sorrow. And so it causes us to long for his return, and it causes us to, to depend on him as we follow him now. So we need to keep walking in faith and obedience and even joy, knowing that we are, by God's grace, we are his children, we are in his kingdom, and his kingdom is eternal. Then at the end of verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples another thing to expect, natural disasters. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, he says there in verse 7. And again, we, we see that every year, every generation, right? We see that. We should expect natural disasters because as we heard in our scripture reading, creation itself is under the curse. Creation itself is, is groaning and longing for redemption, and so, yeah, the, God created a, a beautiful world, but now it's, it's broken under the, the fall of sin, and we still see his beauty and glory shine through, but yet the creation is longing to, to, to be redeemed. And imagine what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, how, that will, how beautiful that'll be, and we'll see everything working perfectly together. Nothing broken, no natural disasters. But while we wait for Christ's return, we should expect natural disasters. Natural disasters and trouble and droughts and famines and things, right? And, and again, that, that sounds discouraging, I suppose, but think about the chaos of this world is an opportunity for us to testify to the gospel. And this is where, as Christians, we really need to be different, loved ones, right? Uh, people all around us are going to be anxious and discouraged and fearful. You see that, don't you? I mean, it's only increased ever since the pandemic, right? How, how anxious people are, how fearful they are, how discouraged they are because they see all the bad news too. And, and again, the, the way news groups get, get clicks is just to keep pumping that bad news to us all the time, right? But people are discouraged and this is a chance for us to, to be different. Again, not that our hearts are not moved and, 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 and sorrowful, but, but to have a hope to have hope and confidence that God is in control and that one day, again, Jesus will come back and make everything right. And so the brokenness and chaos of this world is a perfect opportunity to not only show our hope, but even to invite people to, to trust in Christ, to, to invite people to follow King Jesus, to tell them that someone has done something about the brokenness in this world, that Jesus has come and defeated sin and death, 
And that one day he's going to make all things new. And so it's an it's a opportunity to invite them to forsake their sin and follow King Jesus so that they too can have the peace of knowing that they're reconciled with God and that they'll be with him forever. Disaster, Jesus taught this, right? I mean, certainly the apostles proclaim this as well, but Jesus himself taught that disasters and calamities are a, a stark reminder not only to us that, of the fact that we live in a fallen, broken world, yes, but that we ourselves are sinners who need a Savior. Remember, I think that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, but when um, there was a tragedy, right, a tower fell, and, and, you know, people, and then there was uh, Christians being persecuted, and Jesus, his answer was to the people who were asking him about this, why did this happen? He says, repent or you too will perish. It was just a reminder to us that we're all sinners. Not that, not that when disasters happen to people, it's because of their sin, but it's just a reminder of the presence of sin, that sin has affected us all. And so it's an opportunity to to call people to repentance, to realize that they too are a sinner who needs a Savior. That it's not just this world that's in chaos, but it's actually my own heart that is in chaos apart from Christ. Right? I was made to know God. I was made to worship Him and and live in fellowship with Him. But because of my sin, I rebel against Him. I, I push Him away and I try to be Lord of my own life. I try to seek satisfaction from the things of the world. And so that's why I'm constantly unfulfilled. That's why I live in this state of, of dissatisfaction. And I live in this state of, of, dis, of chaos. And so it's a chance to, to show people where true peace can be found. It can be found in Christ, the Prince of Peace. So false claims, wars, natural disasters, chaos... Then Jesus says in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Birth pains, right? That tells us, what, what, think about, here's a man, right, trying to describe labor. And you women are like, yeah, okay. But think about what birth pains tell us, right? It tells us something's happening, right? This is painful, this is uncomfortable, but something's happening. Something, it, we're expecting something, namely the birth of a child, to come at some point. But when the birth pains start, the child isn't always there yet, right? There's, there's, a, there's a, a time gap there. And so birth pains became a, a metaphor for the, the prophets describing suffering that occurs before deliverance comes. Suffering that occurs while we await deliverance. And specifically by the time of, of Jesus there in the first century, birth pains um, were... M- known to be describing specifically the coming of the Messiah, right? In other words, this period of distress that occurs before the Messiah comes, before deliverance comes, before the Messiah comes and makes all things new. And so Jesus is saying, just as a woman has pain before delivering a beautiful child, so these troubles that we're going to experience, they're going to be painful before our ultimate deliverance. Before the second coming of Christ, when he rids the world of sin and creates the new heavens and the new earth. Right? We're, we, we, the Bible talks, describes our salvation in terms of already but not yet. We've already been delivered from the penalty of sin and from the enslaving uh, power of sin. So we've already tasted parts of that deliverance, but we're waiting for our ultimate deliverance. When Christ returns, when we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. And in verse 9, he describes something else Christians should expect. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So we should expect persecution. Christians are going to be persecuted because of our allegiance to Jesus. Again, Jesus prepares his disciples for this, not only here in Matthew 24, but in the Gospel of John. You have that, the, several chapters there of the upper room discourse, right? Jesus, the, the, the last evening he's spending with his disciples before his arrest and then crucifixion the next day. So please turn with me ahead to John 15. I want you to just notice one passage quickly. Actually, we'll look at two passages, but both here in John. John 15, 18, that's page 902 using the black Bibles. Keep your finger in Matthew. We'll be back. 
But again, the same thing here. Jesus preparing his disciples for the fact that they're going to face persecution. John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Same thing he's saying in Matthew, isn't it? The world hated Jesus because he was not of their world. He came into this world to bring love and peace and deliverance. But the world rejected him, put him to death. And now, if we're united to Christ in faith, if we're followers of Christ, we're not of this world either. Right? People have those bumper stickers or decals or whatever. Not of this world. That's true in one sense. We're we're to be in this world, but not of this world. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been placed in his eternal kingdom of light. And so just as the world hated and persecuted Jesus, so we too should expect to receive the same treatment. Christians should expect persecution because we serve King Jesus. We we serve a different king than the world serves. The world serves the king of self. And ultimately they don't realize that they're serving the prince of the power of the air, Satan. But we seek to live a godly life serving King Jesus. And so we will be persecuted. Because Jesus is our Lord, we cannot participate or condone in the actions that violate God's word. 1 Peter 4 talks, uh, really the whole letter of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are undergoing persecution. And he says, don't, don't be surprised at this, right? And then 1 Peter 4, 3 says, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So you see, why we'll be persecuted is because we follow Christ and because we can't partake in, in the, the evil practices that they do. And so young people, as you, as you leave the home and as you head off to college or career or wherever it is, just know that the world is, is by and large, not going to like you. Not that you go out and try to make enemies, not that you go out and be, certainly not be self-righteous or be a jerk or anything, but it's just because you can't participate or you won't participate in their activities, they're going to be offended. And no matter how loving you try to do it, apart from God's grace, they'll be like, oh, you think you're better than me, right? Oh, you think you're so self-righteous? You're like, no, I, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, I sin every day, and I depend on the grace of God. But I, I love Jesus, and he's told me not to do these things. But yet, even when we're trying to just live a quiet life, as Scripture says, mind our own business to, to many degree, uh, to many respects, We still should expect persecution because the light of Jesus shines forth into the darkness, into this dark world. As as the life of Jesus has lived through us, the light is going to shine into the darkness. And again, apart from God's grace to draw, the, the darkness hates the light because it exposes their deeds as evil, right? And so what do they do? They try to snuff out the light just like they did to Jesus So we should expect persecution. Jesus tells his followers to expect persecution. And the history of the church, by and large, shows that this is the case. And that's why in America, we're kind of like the exception. (laughs) We've enjoyed years of freedom from persecution by God's grace. But again, that's the exception, not the norm. And we see that even that window of of peace is, is closing, right? It's closing. The cultural winds are shifting rapidly, and we, we are seeing increasing persecution of Christianity even here in America. And, and we should expect that, loved ones. Jesus warned us ahead of time so that we wouldn't be caught off guard, so that we wouldn't fall away, so that we will cling to him and trust in him to preserve us and help us to remain faithful. Back to Matthew, 
Verse 10 says, many, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. You see, that's the thing about the persecution. It's not only just happening from like other unbelievers, but even from their own family. Right? Imagine what that would be like for your own family to turn you in and say, yeah, he, here's a Christian. He goes to church. I see him reading his Bible. I see her praying. But family members do that, and they do that around this world in some religious cultures like Islam or, or in, here in first century Judaism. People persecuted family members who are Christians because they think their Christian family members have turned away from what is true. They think they're deceived, they're blind, they think they're following the truth. And so they're zealous for that. But Jesus says the persecutors are the ones who are are blind. They're the ones who are not following the truth. If you're still in John, look at what he says in John 16. Again, same kinds of uh, themes we're seeing in, in Matthew 24. John 16, 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So yes, they're going to be religious. They're going to think they're, they're following God by, by persecuting Christians. But he says they're, they're blind, they're deceived. They don't know the Father. The God they worship is not the true God. Now back to Matthew 24. Again, similar, similar things, similar signs, similar um, circumstances to expect. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, verse 13 says. These are sober verses, aren't they? Again, we've, we've enjoyed such a time of, you know, for the last however many years you want to say, you know, where Christianity is kind of just culturally accepted and, and which has its own dangers, by the way, right? Because people are, can be nominal Christians, Christians in name only. And that's actually what persecution and trouble will reveal, right? Is persecution will separate the wheat from the chaff because those who are just um, nominal Christians, those who were just doing it because of, you know, the benefits or because of, you know, they thought it was the thing to do. Once they start getting persecuted for that, they're going to fall away. They're going to say, no, no, this is not worth it. This is not worth the cost. Or they're going to be led astray. Some will fall away because they fear the violence of persecution. Others led astray by false teaching. And notice what verse 12 said, as wickedness or lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. Isn't that interesting? Right? So it's not just persecution. That's not the only danger that those who would follow Christ face. No, another danger is, would be prosperity, worldliness. Those things trip many people up, right? This world entices our sinful desires. And so as we pursue the glitter of the world and seek to satisfy those, those desires, our love for Jesus can grow cold. And that's certainly the danger that many in the West have faced, right? And still face more so than even persecution. Is love growing cold? Why? Because the glitter of the world. And that's where we put our hope. That's we embrace the values of the world. But verse 13 says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those who, by God's grace, endure persecution... And suffering till the end. Maybe it's their death. Maybe they're they're alive when Christ returns. Either way, they're going to be saved. They're going to be the ones who are truly saved. Saved from God's wrath and with God forever in his heavenly kingdom. Again, we've seen this several times in Matthew. I won't read all the verses. But he's been telling us to the importance of persevering, the importance of enduring to the end. And the apostles pick up on that truth as well. Now when we talk about enduring persecution and, and those are the ones who are saved, that Jesus is not saying that you're saved by your works. No, it's still by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But the point is that genuine faith will endure. 
Genuine faith will endure trials. Genuine faith will endure persecution. Genuine faith will be able to, to not give in to the pleasures of this world and, and our, have our love grow cold. We don't do this, of course, merely in our own strength. We depend on the grace of God to preserve us to the end. Right? I mean, th- those truths came out so beautifully in our songs <laughs> today. I was noticing as we, as we sang that it's God's grace that, that keeps us and preserves us, right? The Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints, that all who are true Christians will in fact persevere in the faith by the grace of God. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So despite persecution, and often in the face of persecution, the gospel continues to spread. It's proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. That's, in fact, one indicator of the nearness of Christ's return is when the gospel is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And now in verses 15 through 21, he speaks of a particularly sharp birth pain. Remember we were talking about pains? And again, I believe verses 15 through 21 are talking about the fall of Jerusalem there in AD 70. When the temple is destroyed, when, when uh, the Romans come in and just level everything and, and, and massacre over a million people, over a million Jews. I think that's the, the tribulation, the great tribulation he's talking about in verse 21. Because if that was talking about the tribulation at the end of the age... To me, the language doesn't make sense because the great tribulation at the end of the age is followed by the new heavens and the new earth. And and so to say that a tribulation like this will never take place again doesn't make sense. But these geographic and cultural details, again, are specific and show that he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which again is a pattern for what we can expect throughout the generations. So verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. In other words, the reader of Daniel understand. Those who have read Daniel know it talks about an abomination of desolation. Uh, Daniel 9.27 and 12.11. Certain events that are going to take place, Jesus says, should tell those who've read Daniel to understand what they're talking about. And I think here the abomination of desolation is talking about the Romans surrounding Jerusalem during the Jewish war there in, in AD 66-67 time frame. Them coming in with their symbols and, and things and their idolatry, that was defiling the temple. And the reason I think that's what this is talking about is you look at the parallel text to the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. The parallel verse to this one is Luke 21-20. Luke doesn't use the word abomination of desolation. Why? Because he's, written to, he's writing mainly to Gentiles, Right? Matthew's writing to Jews who would have recognized that term from the book of Daniel. But Luke just says it this way. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So see, I think that's the abomination of desolation Jesus is referring to. There was the Jewish war around AD 67. The Jews decided to revolt against the Romans. And that led to the Romans... Um, you can read about all the details in history. I've, I've studied them this week. But for the sake of time, I won't break, give you all these names and dates. But that led to the Romans coming and laying siege on Jerusalem, surrounding Jerusalem. And eventually destroying Jerusalem and massacring the Jews. And that's why these verses here are, are specific. And Jesus is telling his followers, when you see that happen, flee. And see, that's right the opposite of what, they, what a normal person would have done. If they see armies starting to come, and they live kind of out in the countryside, where would they go? They would go to the city. They would say, I need to go to the city where there's walls and where I'll be safe. And Jesus says, no, you need to do right the opposite. Why? Because they're going to destroy that city. He says, run, run for the hills. Literally, right? Don't Don't wait. You know, you see the urgency. Don't, don't go back for anything. Just, just run. And by the way, history shows that the early Christians did heed Jesus' warning. The ancient church historian Eusebius reports that during the Roman siege in AD 67, many Christians left the city and fled. And so eventually when the Romans broke through and, and killed everybody, most of, if not all, of the Christians were gone. Because they listened to Jesus' words. 
So then I think verses 22 through 28 then, again, just talk about this general period of distress that was, we've already, was already introduced in verses 4 through 14. Certainly those things were true in the first century, false Christs and famines and disasters and persecution, and now it's just continuing to re- reciprocate. So in verse 22, he says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short tells us that this age of evangelism, of the gospel going forth, but yes, also of distress, of wars, famines, persecutions, hatred, false prophets. He's saying things are going to be so bad that unless God intervenes to curtail those evil things, no one's going to survive. But here, this is a promise that God is not asleep at the wheel. God is not just going to let things run its course. No, he's going to cut it short. He's going to intervene at the right time according to his sovereign timing. At just the right time, God is going to send Jesus again to deliver his people once and for all, to eradicate evil once and for all. So God will spare the elect, perhaps not from suffering, but at least from annihilation. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, again, same kinds of things we've already been seeing, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. There's going to be many false Christs, many false prophets, and even though they do signs, even though they do miracles, Christians are not to be deceived. We need to listen to this, loved ones. Who knows when we may see this? People doing convincing signs. People with persuasive talk. But don't be deceived, he says. Don't be deceived. And we see again God's preserving grace. He says, if possible, even the elect would be deceived, but they won't be. Because God's going to keep them. God's going to give them discernment. God's going to keep them focused on Christ. And one of the ways Jesus helps his people is telling us these things in advance. So the point is, no, no matter how convincing these pretenders seem to be, we're not to follow them. And, and catch where this is going here. He's saying, Again, people are going to be longing for relief, right? There's going to be trouble. And so somebody shows up and and speaks eloquently and does miraculous things. People are going to naturally gravitate to him and say, Oh, maybe this is Jesus. Maybe he has come back for us. And Jesus says, Don't be deceived. That's not me. Those are false Christs. You say, Well, how are we going to know? How are we going to know when Jesus really comes back? (laughs) Verse 27. (laughs) For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. (laughs) The return of Christ is going to be unmistakable, he says. So if you see some guy doing some, some tricks and bells and whistles, that's not Jesus because when he comes, every eye will see him. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus quotes a a proverb here. It's kind of an obscure proverb, but it probably means that just as people from far away can see vultures circling high in the sky, so Christ's return in judgment is going to be visible to all. And of course, there's kind of an ominous picture with this, isn't there? The picture of vultures circling a corpse may also point to the widespread death that's going to take place when Christ returns to judge his enemies. But either way, the point of verses 27 and 28 is that Christ's return will be visible to all people. No one's going to miss it. It's going to be impossible for someone to miss the second coming of Christ because every eye will see him. So again, the message to us is don't be led astray because when Jesus comes, you're going to know it. Okay? And we'll, in following weeks, we'll talk more about the return of Christ, but we'll end there today through verse 28. But I hope you see that This as a whole, Jesus tells his followers, both in the first century and in every generation, what to expect as we follow him in this fallen world awaiting his return. And again, I I don't, I'm sorry to, if I sound like I'm bringing bad news, (laughs) but I mean, we need to be sober-minded about this, right? We need to realize that things are going to be difficult. 
doesn't mean, by the way, I'm not saying there isn't real joy, right? There's joy and peace in following Christ. There's joy and peace in knowing that your sins are forgiven. There's joy even in the midst of trials and tribulations, right? We can count it all joy because we have the loving arms of the Father uh, preserving us and carrying us through. But he's just saying, don't expect to be comfortable in this world. This is a fallen world that's opposed to Christ. And so how can you expect to follow Christ and and not encounter those troubles? There's going to be many trials and dangers, wars, chaos, false teaching, and persecution. And as I thought about that and I thought about how could I close this message, what would be my summary exhortation for this passage? It's this. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to the words of Jesus, loved ones. Seeking him daily in his word. Stay close to the person of Jesus through prayer and worship. Stay close to the church of Jesus. Right? We need each other for encouragement, don't we? Think about how Christians who are going through persecution and, and, and trials, how, how do they make it through? Well, again, it's God's grace, but one of his means of grace is through the church. We encourage each other. We pray for one another. We, we warn if someone's starting to go astray and be, be deceived. Stay close to Jesus because one day Jesus will come again. And until then, we have the promise conveyed in that well-known hymn. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for saving us and calling us out of this world and and placing us in your eternal kingdom. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us these things ahead of time. We praise you that you are our God. You are our great high priest. You are our comforter and counselor, that you don't leave us as orphans. You don't leave us um, without truth and without power. Lord, you, you live inside each one of us. Thank you for the means of grace that we have to fellowship with you, that your grace can daily strengthen us in the faith. Help us to encourage each other in the Lord, even today. May may you protect us, Lord, from false teaching. May you protect us from being ensnared by the things of this world. Oh, Father, keep us following you fervently. And again, we pray for those who are being persecuted even today. Lord, strengthen their faith. Keep them strong. Remind them of your promises that you are, that you love them and you are coming again. We thank you for the truth that even death itself only ushers us into your presence. That we don't need to fear those who can even take our life. Because you are sovereign. And we know our, our souls, our very salvation is secure. And that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray for our young people, Lord. I we, we see how quickly things are changing here. And, and we, I know many of us maybe um, grieve or are even tempted to be anxious about what, what kind of world they may face as they seek to follow you, as they, by your grace, raise families to follow you. Lord, we know you are faithful and you're there in every generation. You've been our dwelling place, Moses said, for every generation. And so we we just look to you. And I pray that our young people will look to you as they go into this world. That you'll daily draw them close to you. Strengthen them. Plant their roots down deep in Christ. So that the winds of false teaching, the winds of persecution, the winds of worldliness will not shake them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, another means of grace that the Lord gives us is the Lord's Supper. What a way to uh, fix our eyes on Jesus, right? By being reminded of what he has done for us. So if I could have the men come forward, please, who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to us. And, you know, here in Matthew 24, we're, we're, we're talking about this section that, that's going to speak about Christ's return, certainly, and even in the weeks to come. And so that reminded me of what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches about the Lord's Supper. That as we take it, not only are we remembering what Christ has done on the cross, 
but we're also proclaiming his death until he comes. So let me read the passage from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as the elements are passed out, I just encourage you to think about what Jesus has done for you. Be reminded of his death and and resurrection. And be reminded of where he is now. That he's in heaven reigning and that he's coming again for you. And so be be strengthened in your faith. And it's also the appropriate time to to just, uh, again, give the instructions that the Bible gives that what we're about to take here is only for believers. Okay? These are symbols. This is not Christ's body actually being crucified again and his blood being shed again. He has done that once and for all. And so these are symbols that point us to that once for all sacrifice. And they're, they're um, symbols that are only to be partaken of those who have, by grace, embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because we are the ones who truly understand what the bread and the cup are, are, are symbolizing, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. So if you're here today and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, the Bible warns you not to, don't take this. It, taking it doesn't earn you favor with God. Rather, just let it pass by. And instead, I pray that you will um, search your heart and, and I pray that God would be drawing you and opening your eyes to see your need for a Savior that you would call on Christ as your Lord and Savior today. So the men will, will distribute it here in a moment, and this is a time for us all to just thank God for what he's done and long for his return.